Well, this morning, uh, we begin what I've envisioned to be a 10-week series, which is probably one of the longer series I've, I've done since I've been your pastor. Uh, oddly enough, this month begins my 10th year with you. I know it seems like a whole lot longer to some of you, but the 10th year, um, and honestly, some days it feels like a whole lot longer to me. <laughs> it's amazing uh, how time flies when you're having fun, right? Uh, but I want us to take some time and and try to deepen our understanding of what it looks to be a like look what it looks like to be a healthy church. Uh, when I was in my doctoral studies, I did a, a degree in church growth, and that was kind of the thing in the in the '90s is that we needed to figure out methods and activities and actions and practices and procedures and those kind of things to help churches grow. Uh, they discontinued that degree a few years after I finished my degree, so I have an antique doctorate, uh, because they realized that you can do all the principles and all the activities and all the things and all the promotional activities and all those things, and you can get people to show up. But if a church isn't healthy, it's not going to grow. And uh, and it's kind of based on the idea that a healthy child grows. And if you, got, if you have a child come along and that child doesn't mature, doesn't grow, doesn't physically develop, you think something's wrong. Uh, and you go get them checked out. And so what I want us to do is to talk about ten characteristics of what it means to be a healthy church. And, and, and the question is, is what do churches that are healthy do? What do they not do? What do they do? They, not to get healthy, but because they're healthy. And I want you to understand, I'm not talking about the organization of the church. I'm not talking about the structure of the church. I'm not talking about the, the, the practices even of the church, per se. What I want to talk about is who we are as people. Because there's a number of things that healthy churches do, and I've identified ten that we're going to try to spend some time, Lord willing, doing. And we're going to take one each week and, and chart our course to what it means to be a healthy church. Now, over the letter to the Hebrew believers, uh, I think those folks were scattered because of persecution. I, 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 I deeply suspect they're the same people to whom James wrote in his letter. Uh, when he was dealing with the, 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 the diaspora, the, div- the difficulties that were dealing with Jerusalem. And, and, and he takes this book, I think it was Paul, and he, he talks a lot about doctrine and proper belief. And some of you go, so this is going to be 10 weeks of doctrine. I'll see you all in June. You know, don't do that. Because who we are is based so much on what we believe. And so I want to spend, and so hopefully it won't be boring or any more boring than it normally is on Sunday for you. But we'll get through this because I think there's some important stuff that we need to look at because he wants them to understand. Paul wasn't trying to bore the believers he was writing to. What he, he understood was proper belief brings proper action. And if you were to gather in a first century church, if you were to show up on Sunday morning at a, a church in, in, in the New Testament times, it wouldn't look like what we do. They didn't gather in buildings like this. They didn't play organs. They didn't uh, sing the songs that we sing. They didn't read the scriptures and the translations that we read in. They didn't wear clothes that look like ours. They had vastly different practices. So we're not talking about all of that. We're talking about the beliefs. Because the beliefs of what it means to be a Christian never changes. And I don't believe it should ever change. That the essentials are always going to be 
the same. The way we do church can look different, but the way we are church is different. So you come to the 10th chapter uh, of uh, Hebrews. The, the writer has just finished talking about the sufficiency of Christ, which is a deep subject, and of his sacrifice on the cross and those kind of things. And then he turns and says, okay, here's how you're going to live it out in full assurance of faith. And what we find here is a, a, a statement followed by three let us statements. They're in the Greek very clear delineations in the text, let us, let us, let us. And we're not talking about Romaine. We're talking about the two words, let us, okay? We're not talking about the leafy vegetable. We're talking about what we need to do. Are you all with me? All right. So let's take a look at the text in its entirety because I think we need to get the picture, and then I'll break it, kind of break it down for us so we try to apply it at the end. So look at verse 19. Therefore, you know the old saying, when you find a therefore in the Bible, what are you supposed to do? Ask the question, what's it there for? He's getting ready to summarize something, the writer is. It's real common across the New Testament. They'll use that word, and then here comes some summary, all right? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through the flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's the first statement. Then he says, let us... Number one, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Second, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised, who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not in neglecting the meat to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father God, I pray that as we take just a few minutes to look at this passage, to think about the idea of a church gathering, not just to gather, not just to check off the list, we did it on Sunday, but Father, gathering so that we come together as a people so that we can make a difference in the world in which we live, that we can reflect your presence to those that we encounter, that we can show your grace to those who are struggling, that we can help introduce the Father to the fatherless and hope to the hopeless. Father, we can be that connection point for people as we connect with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is the beginning of his thought here when he says, Therefore, It's essentially this, that Christ provides our foundation. There's an old hymn, The Church is One Foundation. Do you remember that song? We don't, I haven't sung that in a hundred, where did that come from? It wasn't even in my notes. That's an old song. I mean, wait a second. I'm revealing my age, I guess. But The Church is One Foundation. You remember that song? The Church is One Foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord, if you remember that old song. That's an essential truth that we need to grasp. As the writer begins a section, he speaks of a confidence that believers in Jesus not need to get, but a a confidence that we already have. And our confidence we already have is that Christ is what? Our foundation. If you're a follower of Jesus, upon whom, not what, but whom are you standing? You're standing on Christ. It's not something we work for, not something we kind of come up with methods to implement. It's something that we already have. See, the moment you trust Christ as Savior, the moment you pray to accept Jesus as your Savior, whether you realize this happened or not, God placed within you His Holy Spirit. 
he took up residence within you. He put a, a down payment on your soul, if you want to look at it that way. He says, you're mine. You're mine. But you also can say, and he's mine. And I am his. He placed that in your life so that you would never have to wonder, am I, am I with him? Am I going in the right direction? And when you answer that call, he places within you his spirit. And he places within you a faith that allows you to understand that you're in the presence of God. And that presence makes it possible for you and me as followers of Jesus to enter into the Holy of Holies. And you're going, Holy of Holies, is that, that Old Testament? He's writing to who? The Hebrews. He's writing to the Jews who have trusted Christ as Savior. So he, he writes in a way that they can relate to. In the Old Testament, the priest would only go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement once a year to offer blood sacrifice for the people for the next year. So what he's telling them is, because of Christ, you, I, now have the ability to do what? Go into the Holy of Holies. I don't have to have a priest go in for me. I don't have to have somebody pray for me or on behalf of me or to offer a sacrifice on my behalf. It's all been accomplished. He is my foundation. He is the basis upon which I live. The sacrificial system ceased because Jesus was crucified on the cross, was buried, and raised the third day. The Holy of Holies became unnecessary in a sense, in the literal sense of a temple. Instead, we're able to, followers of Christ, go into his Holy of Holies on a regular basis, the very presence of him. He's dwelling within us. That's why he says the curtain has been opened. Do you remember in, in on the day of crucifixion, there's a reference in one of the Gospels that the, the temple, the, te- the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And that was the curtain that stood between where the people could go and where the Holy of Holies was located. And what God lit- literally did on the day of crucifixion is he caused that curtain to split, to open, so that now no one has to go in with a special dispensation, but it's everyone who follows Jesus. He constantly intercedes on our behalf, Jesus does. And he's in the throne room. We're coming to him on a regular basis. He's our foundation. And the reality is this, those of us who follow Jesus, there's a real difference here. We will believe, we will act, we will live quite differently from the world. He says, he's our foundation. And coming out of that foundation, we get these three statements, these three let us statements. Okay, so let's look at the first one. He says, first of all, therefore, we can what? Draw near. We can draw near to him. You're saying, well, you kind of already talked about it. Kind of, but look at verse 22. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He calls us to come into a relationship with God. You're probably looking at that verse and go, so is he talking about getting sprinkled for baptism? No. He's talking about what the priest would do when he went into the Holy of Holies. He would take the blood of the sacrificial lamb and would sprinkle it on the altar. And, and you're going, that's kind of gross. I'm with you. We don't do that anymore, y'all. Okay, aren't you glad? Because the sacrifice was completed at the cross. The last lamb was sacrificed on your behalf and my behalf. His blood was shed, why? So we could have new life. He says, because of that, now we can draw close to him. We don't have to sneak in the back door. We don't have to try to slip in the back. We get to come boldly into the presence of the Holy God. And the enemy will walk up to you and whisper in your ear something like this. You're not worthy. You know all that stuff you've done. You're not worthy. Or or this. 
Nobody will notice. Nobody cares. You won't be missed. It's not important. Because we have a high priest and because the curtain's been opened for us, we can draw near to God. And he made not a way, but as John says, the way for us to come into the presence of God. And we can come boldly into his presence. We can come into his presence. We can walk in his ways. But observe this interesting dynamic. When you come boldly, when she comes boldly, when I come boldly, here's what happens. We all end up at the same place. You ever get that? We end up in the presence of who? Of God. In that same place. And we're able to do it no matter what we may have done or not done because his blood has covered a multitude of sins. He's not talking just in spiritual terms, I don't think, here. I think there's also a physical here. His, his forgiveness in the blood of Christ covers your spiritual sin of rejecting salvation until you receive his salvation. But it also covers your ongoing sins and struggles we have in our lives when we make continued mistakes. You all with me? Anybody? All, we all do that. And it's, it continues to work. And we need to understand that we have been forgiven of all those sins, past, present, and future. And when we stay confessed up, we are with him. So, first let us, let us, get some salad dressing. Let us, we can draw near to him. Let us draw near. Number two, and we can hold what? Fast to hope. You ever get hopeless? You ever think there's no way? It's over. I can't do it. It's not going to work. Look at verse 23. He says, let us. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Who's he talking about there? Jesus. God the Father. The Holy Spirit working. He he says, hold fast to that confession of faith. This second confession is centered, let's get this, on our relationship with the world. These people to whom he's writing are culturally Jewish. They've received with joy the good news that Jesus is Messiah. He saved them in the same way he saved you if you've trusted Christ. You're going... Really? Yeah. Salvation has never changed. It's always been a process of what? We, tr- we hear the voice of God and we respond to the voice of God and we trust Him. That's how people have done it for centuries. The people in this passage, that's how they were. They, they, they made a confession of faith. It may have not looked like walking down an aisle in a church building, but they made a confession of faith in that moment. And these people who have done that, they're living in a very difficult situation. See, following Jesus in the first century Roman world was not easy because it was weird. In fact, following Jesus made their life more complicated, not less complicated. They made it harder, not easier. They would get all kinds of pushback because they were following. The old circle of friends would think, well, you know... um, the, the law is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to do all these rules and get it there. Y- y'all are messing up now. And the Romans would look at him and think, what in the world cult are you following? It wasn't easy. And I think if they were the same people who left Jerusalem, they were facing serious persecution. And I think in that moment, I think every one of us would be faced with a temptation, the one that I think they were, which was to say, I'm going to get out of this stuff. This is too hard. It's not easy. You ever, you ever find faith in Christ hard? And sometimes you go, I believe in Jesus. And so there's certain things that the scriptures tell me are true. And I believe those with all of my heart. And then you come across someone who believes the exact opposite. And you've got to have a conversation with them that's uncomfortable. And share 
what you believe is the truth from God's word, even though they look at you and go, you have lost your mind. You're nuts. Yeah. I had it happen to me this week. It happens a lot to me, actually. You go, man, it'd be lazier just to go along, wouldn't it? To just say, oh, yeah, what you believe is great. It's wonderful. I'm going to respect their position, right? But we need to share the truth, correct? And it puts us in that awkward position. I think that's why the writer says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. See, the moment you trusted Christ, you made a confession of faith. Ultimately, it's a confession of hope. Hope in what? Hope that Christ is going to forgive us of our sin. Hope that he's going to hold us until the end. Hope he's going to take us home when we die. That hope that we have in Christ that the world doesn't have. We have that hope. And they needed to be reminded of their confession. They needed to be reminded of the moment they agreed with God that they were sinners and they needed to follow Christ. They needed to be reminded that there was a change in their life and they were moving in a new direction and they were following the light and they weren't going to go the way the world goes. But listen, it's not based on your resolve. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hold fast. That's how we want to hear that. That's not what his thought is. It's the idea that because God has placed within me his presence and his Holy Spirit, I now have that ability. I don't have to work it up. I just have to release it. I got it. Let it go. See, once you follow the call of God, there's no way out. He said, so hold fast. And then he gives it a third let us. Look at verse 24. And it's our memory verse for the series, so hopefully we'll get this one memorized. And let us, what? Think about. Consider. Contemplate. What? How to stir up, not me, but you. And you have to contemplate how to stir up me. It's a, it's a teamwork. It's kind of helpful to be together to do that, by the way. How to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meet to meet together. I want to say meeting together because that's how the King James translates it. To meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day. And he's talking about what? The return of Christ. He's coming. You know, he's coming, right? I, I thought it would have already happened in my life, to be honest with you, but he hadn't come yet. He's coming, but the day is drawing near. He's coming. Then he writes this third lettuce, and he speaks not of our relationship with God or the call to remain fe- steadfast in our faith, but he talks about the relationship that we got to have with each other. This is where the passage gets really, really messy and hard. You know why? Because people are messy and people are hard. You've heard it said, life would be great if it wasn't for the people. Life would be solitary if it wasn't for the people. People have got issues. You got issues, I got issues. They got issues, we all got issues. We all got problems, we all got stuff. Whew. I can't do it alone, can you? Some people say, well, I'll just do it alone and be by myself and it's a lot easier. Mm, you're missing out. Remember, he started this passage in verse 19 with a description of the relationship between fellow brothers. He called them, look back in verse 19, he called them what? Brothers. Now, I understand the Greek is, is gender inclusive there, so don't, you know, ladies, don't feel like you're being offensive. It's being, oh, women are excluded there, because it's not. It's, it's really a gender inclusive concept there. It's just the language of the day said brothers, and it meant everybody. So I like to use the word beloved. 
Because we are His beloved, aren't we? There's something special in the lives of the followers of Jesus centered on the point of intersection with the beloved. When we gather together, we come together, we connect with each other. You see, Christ, in Christ, we discover a high priority, get this, on the interconnectedness of the body of Christ. Christianity and Christian faith was never intended to be lived in solitary confinement with nobody else around or just one or two others around. There's a communal experience of Christian faith that is important. It said we're to do what? To consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. There's no place for spiritual loners in the kingdom of God, though we've got many of them. There's no place to go alone, go it alone. There's no place to avoid everybody. Instead, we're called to what? Consider one another, to think about one another, to walk with one another, to say, how do I help encourage each other? And good works, I think by nature, though they can be done in solitary, in, in, in solitary environments, even if you do a good work that nobody knows about, there had to be somebody who received that good work. So you cannot do it alone by definition. You need others. His calling here, I think, is practical because as we're in Christ, part of our calling, get this, is to stir each other up to good works, to say, I'm here to encourage you to... Man, there's some folks that do things that I will never have the ability or gift or interest in doing in the kingdom of God, and I'm sure glad they're around, aren't you? They do stuff that I can't do, and I do stuff that they can't do, but together we do stuff together that's just amazing. We need each other. And healthy churches say, we get that. Ultimately, I think the big idea here is we need one another to become fully formed followers of Christ. I am firmly convinced after all these years of serving and doing and what I do, that you cannot grow up in Christ if you're not growing together with other believers. You need a, a small group setting. You need a large group setting. You need a place that's broader than you and bigger than you and also a place where you can sit down and have conversations. I just love 945 or, well, in our class, 10 o'clock when we get started finally, where we come together in a room and gather around the Bible and talk with each other and share with each other. And then I love coming in here with all of you. We need that. So so what do we do with this? Three thoughts, and, and, and I'll... I got. I, you went short this morning. Thank you. Uh, so we'll be out of time on time still. The first thing I want you to see is this: Jesus died to make us clean. You're probably thinking, how does that fit into this? Well, every person in this room is either following Jesus or is not following Jesus. Every person listening online is either following Jesus or not following Jesus. There's no in between. There's no middle ground. There was either a time when you turned from your sin and you confessed Jesus as Lord, or you've never done that. There's no option. For those who recall that moment and have experienced his transformative love, we understand this truth. Jesus died on the cruel cross of Calvary to do what? To make me clean. Over the letter to Titus, Paul wrote forcefully about what he needed to proclaim. He said this, God's grace bought the way for humans to be saved from their sinfulness. He purchased your price. He purchased your forgiveness. He purchased your salvation. Look what verse 11 says. For the grace of God has appeared. Who is the, who is the grace of God? Listen, that's Jesus, okay? The grace of God's appeared bringing salvation for all people. Does that mean all people will be saved? It does not. It means that all people can be saved. Y'all with me? Training us, those of us who have experienced this, training us to do this. You ready? To renounce ungodliness. 
and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness, all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, get the last line here, who are zealous for what? Good works. We don't do good works to become saved. We do good works because we are saved. It's an outflow of who we are. He died to make us clean, to set us free. Because of the work of Jesus in our lives, we simply cannot, will not, and don't want to do nothing in the kingdom of God. There's something we need to grasp here. We've been set free from the bond of sin, and we're on a new pathway. And it changes how we live. It changes our practice, our actions, our beliefs, our thoughts. It changes us inside out, upside down, left, right, up. All of it, everything changes because Jesus died to make us what? Clean. Your forgiveness, my forgiveness, cost the death of Jesus on a cross. And how dare we treat that flippantly or poorly? His call is this. I gave my all for you. Now you give your all for me. Second, Jesus lives in our love. One of the amazing things that Jesus told his disciples toward the end of his life was the high calling he had, not just for his 12 disciples, but for all of us as his followers. Somewhere along the way, we have, tried, we have made Christian faith so, we've tried to make it so easy. Just come to church and it'll be good. There's more to it than that. His calling for your life, for my life, is to live out, listen to this, the kind of love that God has for us. We are supposed to, as body of believers, as individual believers, we're supposed to love like Jesus loves. And when we do that, then he lives in us and in our love. Look at John 14, or John 13. A new commandment, Jesus said, I give you, that you love one another. Uh, can we stop there? That's hard, right? Sometimes I don't even like people, much less love them, right? He says, I want you to love one another. But but get this, that you love one another. How? Just as I've loved you. How did God love me? Well, if you do the right thing, and you do the right things, and go to the right places, and do, yeah, I'll love you then. No. Listen, if you don't have never heard, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. God loves you exactly where you are. Some of you, I don't know if I believe that or not. Whether you believe it or not, it's true. God loves you. And you're going to love each other if you're a follower of Jesus. Some of you go, I don't like so-and-so. Okay, just love them then like Jesus did. You make that decision to love on the person that you maybe struggle with, guess what will happen? It will change your heart. It will change your attitude. It will change your mind. And why does that matter? Look what Jesus, look what Jesus said. Verse 35, By this all people will know if you are my disciples. How? 
if you agree on the same song in church, if you read the same translation, if you go to the right building, if you go at the same time, if you're in the right denomination, if you wear the right clothes, if you... No, he says, if you what? Have love. You remember there's an old song, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's not a Christian song. It was never written with a Christian thought in mind. I get that. But you know what? What the world needs now is Christians who love each other and they love the people of the world where they are and are praying for God to change them with that love. Churches that grow, that are healthy, love Love each other. Love the world. Sounds like something we've been talking about five years around here at least. That's two lines. To love God and love people. And then finally, Jesus' followers seek godly unity. Don't eject the word godly. A lot of folks will say, we need unity. So that means this. We're going to figure out where we can all agree and we're going to come to the lowest common denominator and we're going to agree on that and we're going to have unity in that. Uh, I was talking to a, a family a friend this week uh, about their life, and they were telling me about the last 20-something years of their life and how that, uh, and I didn't realize that this individual, uh, their spouse had died about 30 years ago, and they had met an individual uh, 22 years ago and uh, began a relationship, and then they decided they would live together never making a commitment of marriage. And then one of them died about three years ago, and that's the part I didn't realize. I also didn't realize that they had never actually gotten married. And the individual went on to tell me that they had been a leader, have been a leader in their church. They've been influential in leading the congregation they serve. And, uh, and I was thinking to myself, there's a church who found unity around a common beliefs, but they weren't godly. God doesn't bless that. He doesn't bless that kind of stuff. Jesus' followers seek godly unity. We work together for worship. We work together for fellowship. We come together for ministry, for mission. But catch this, unless we come together in a place that we interact with one another in a positive way based on God's truth revealed in His Word, it won't happen. We need each other. But we also have to come together not with just what we can get together for on, but on what the Scriptures teach as clear and essential truths. We can't compromise what God has said in His Word. As long as we're running off in different directions, or we ignore each other, or worse, denigrate each other, or those things within the body of Christ that we say are unimportant or unnecessary. We're damaging ourselves. We've got to come together around the essentials of the faith in Christ, revealed in God's holy and errant word, and hang ourselves tight together that says, I struggle with some of the way they do. I don't like their humor. I don't like this thought. I don't like that. I don't like this. But we love each other, and we're working for godly unity. 
Listen to what Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. He said, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to what? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I think his thought here is followers of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Release the Holy Spirit in your life. And then make those decisions to live in such a way that you honor God in everything you do. That we work for unity in every way we can. That we live with a gentleness. We live with a peacefulness. That we say, I'm here for the kingdom of God. So often we find ourselves wanting to build our own little kingdoms, don't we? We want, this is my thing, this is my deal, this is my area. Listen, I don't care about the little kingdoms. I care about the big K kingdom. You with me? The kingdom of God. That's what we're here for. So the first mark of a healthy church is when God's people come together to accomplish the common good of the work of the greater kingdom. And we set aside our preferences and we set aside our wants. And we say, God, I want you to work. How do you get there? First of all, you've got to know him. Second, you have to surrender to him. And third, you've got to live like Jesus did and love like Jesus did. We want to have a time of invitation for those who maybe need to make a decision public of some kind. Maybe you need to commit your life to Christ publicly. You haven't done that yet. It's a great place to do it. Safe environment. Maybe you need to become part of this fellowship. Welcome a couple last weekend. It was a good learning for Aaron last Sunday morning. Whatever it takes to get you moving in the right direction, that's the next step for you. And we want to give you that opportunity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come in your house. To take a few minutes to look at this passage and be reminded of, of one of the marks of a healthy church is a church that says we're going to work together. We're going to love each other like Jesus loved And we're going to do the things that you're calling us to do. Father, I pray for uh, any in this room who maybe need to respond in some way. Father, we pray your hand to lead them, to guide them, to give them your confidence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.